Throughout the 20th century, planetariums have served as provoking vehicles for science education by visualizing the night sky and its vast, complicated wonder. But these mechanisms have evolved and changed as scientific and celestial beliefs have. Interpreters have inhabited these institutions throughout this continuum. In this episode, we will explore the roots of these institutions, their present practices, and visions for the future. This is not only the night sky, but much more on the Kalamazoo Valley Museum Interpretive Hour. My name is Jacob Wolf, And I'm Gray Wilson. And before we get into our case studies and exploration of planetariums in the present, it's important to look at the roots of the practice. The roots of planetariums date back to antiquity. Astrolabs, quadrants, and globes are all predecessors to the planetarium, envisioning the astrological or divine universe. But the actual practice and the visualization of the universe as a model dates back to something a little bit later. For example, an orrery was an early form of a planetarium dating back to Ireland in 1716. This mechanical device would be wound up in which a spectator would view the operator winding the device created out of brass and precious stones which depicted the universe usually rotating around the Earth. These devices were about artisanal skill, divine design, and performance in theater. The aspect of performance in theater is the one that would carry on into modern planetariums today. The first planetarium in general, however, was created by Isa Isinga in 1781 in the Netherlands. This planetarium is the oldest of its kind, and Its roots are very interesting. In 1774, there was a belief in the Netherlands that the world was going to end, that it was the end of times. And Isa Isinga, being an educated man, knew that this was not true. He decided to create a mechanical representation on the ceiling of his home of the universe. This rotating mechanical device is still in use today and functions much like a clock. It circles around the sun, in this case, and shows all of the known planets at that time. It took several years to complete, and its longevity influenced several other institutions into the 19th century. However, this was not the modern planetarium that we know today. The modern planetarium has a projector. The first modern planetarium was founded in 1923. The Technique Museum in Munich created the first modern planetarium. It projected a dome under the sun, moon, stars, and planets, all in motion. This was very popular and led to planetaria being built in Berlin, Moscow, and other cities. The projector used at this institution was a Zeiss projector. Zeiss was an early manufacturer of planetarium projectors and continues to be a prominent company as of today. However, it would take seven more years for the first planetarium to make its way into the United States of America. Max Adler funded the first planetarium in Chicago in 1930. 
This was the Adler Planetarium, and continues to be in use today. We'll talk a bit more about this planetarium later. Now, before World War II, only 30 planetariums existed in the world, but the number shot up after the war. This was largely due to the 1957 launch of Sputnik 1, the first satellite, and the culture of the space race deeply influenced the increase of planetariums post-World War II. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, this demand also led to portable blow-up planetariums which made their way to various cities in the United States. In the 1980s, as technology developed, cartoony films and non-astrological uses of planetariums proliferated. Now they began to diversify and be more than just celestial depictions. And this was particularly by a need to better attract audiences to planetariums to diversify their shows. Another method used throughout the 1990s and 2000s was including famous actors and narrators to record audio over these planetarium shows, instead of using the general presenter. Also, providing a narrative approach in these shows had a likewise effect of attracting more audiences. As of 2009, the USA and Japan have had the largest amount of planetariums in the world. And the US still surpasses Japan with 50% of the world's planetariums. On a personal note, this makes sense considering Cold War relations post-World War II, since the USA and Japan were deeply tied to each other in that Cold War technological confrontation. And whether we're talking about an orrery in 1716 in Ireland, or we're talking about Isa Isinga's first planetarium in 1781, or the first modern planetarium at the Technique Museum in Munich in 1923. Interpreters were present throughout all of this. They were the people winding the orrery. They were the people discussing why the world is not going to end in the Netherlands by looking at the celestial representation. They were the people looking at the projector which went onto a dome in Munich and said, this is the universe and this is the science. And they used these very unique mediums to provoke and to carry out Tilden's principles, the Tor model, and all these theories that we've talked about earlier, years before they were even thought of. And in order to analyze some of these theories in practice, we're going to delve into some case studies of individual planetariums. As Jacob mentioned, the Adler Planetarium was the first planetarium in the United States. Following the construction and launch of the Field Museum in May of 1921, both the Adler Planetarium as well as the John G. Shedd Aquarium opened in 1930 and now work in conjunction in what is known as Chicago's Museum Campus. At its opening, founder Max Adler stated, It is my hope that the youth of our city, and indeed of other cities, may through this dramatization find new interests and fresh inspiration, and also that with the aid of the Planetarium and Astronomical Museum, science may be advanced. The original desire that Adler had has undeniably come to fruition, as today it has become known as one of the world's premier centers of astronomy and astrophysics, whose astronomers possess rich and diverse expertise. The institution conducts and publishes an enormous amount of research on an ongoing basis in the fields of planetary geology, star formation, gamma rays, and telescope observation, in addition to this, the Adler is home to what they describe as the largest and most significant collection of astronomical books, archives, paintings, and photographs in the Western Hemisphere. 
The Space Visualization Lab at the Adler Planetarium is renowned amongst some of the most prominent institutions in the country, as scientists, educators, artists, and technology experts work collectively in order to create immersive and interactive astronomy programs. The Adler Planetarium has without a doubt set an enormously high precedent in the field of astronomical interpretation and continues to lay the groundwork for the future of this field of research. Today, the Adler Planetarium hosts more than 500,000 people on an annual basis, and through a variety of outreach programs, they are able to connect with thousands more. These include neighborhood skywatching events, online citizen science, and youth programming that is dedicated to giving people of all backgrounds and ages, quote, the confidence to explore their universe together and return to their communities ready to think critically and creatively about any challenge that comes their way, end quote. The Adler offers an ample variety of programming for people of all ages. Programs that they present include Welcome to the Universe, Planet Nine, and Imagine the Moon, which provide an in-depth look at much of what makes up our solar system, and in this setting allows for a much deeper understanding of the concepts. Skywatch Live, which is a program similar to that of the Star Talks given in our very own planetarium at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum, allows visitors to explore the night sky in the city around them, without the interference of light pollution, providing a unique learning experience that is of the highest quality in the sense that it is not only educational, but also personal. It has the potential to inspire and provoke people to explore the concepts with new information that they might not find elsewhere. As was described by founder Max Adler, Chicago has been striving to create, and in a large measure has succeeded, in creating facilities for its citizens of today to live a life richer and more full of meaning than was available for citizens of yesterday. Through its unyielding efforts to create immersive and interactive public programming, the Adler Planetarium has done just that. It allows us as citizens of today to explore the future of astronomy and provokes us to undertake explorations of our own. Adler described that, Quote, the popular conception of the universe is too meager. The planets and the stars are too far removed from general knowledge, end quote. The technological advancements that are at our disposal today render this statement fundamentally untrue. Visitors to the planetarium are better able to put things into context and gain a proper understanding of and appreciation for the universe around us. Planetariums as such have the ability to connect people to the universe in a unique way. They effectively put things into perspective by means of a kinesthetic learning experience. And another major institution in the United States, this one in New York City, is the Hayden Planetarium. The original planetarium was built in 1935 due to the help of Charles Hayden, who purchased the Zeiss projector for the institution. Charles Hayden went to the Adler Planetarium and thought to himself that the East Coast needed one of these, and for that reason, that's why he was the benefactor. However, remodeling of the institution began in the 1990s and was built and opened by the early 2000s. Now equipped with a digital projector, according to director Neil deGrasse Tyson, all of the field of astrophysics is open and could be communicated to the public. The site is a 95-square-foot glass cube. There's a rotundum which depicts 13 million galactic years. The planetarium serves an awesome purpose. The Mark IX Zeiss projector was specifically designed for the Hayden Planetarium. According to the director, the Zeiss projector is an aggregation of over 100 stereo-opticon machines which project on the dome overhead the resemblance of the night sky. 
From this, viewers can trace constellations and track the motion of planets of stars, as well as visualize themselves across the universe. The planetarium now explores more cosmic discoveries that have happened since the initial planetarium in 1935. For years, it was primarily used to do star talks with the original planetarium projector, and now it can explore larger and more developed themes as the scientific field rapidly increases in its development and research. These themes could be the Big Bang or black holes. And according to the director, planetariums need to keep up with research in this field to be on the forefront of science education. This includes being aware of the digital era. And the Hayden Planetarium sees itself as an adaptation to the vast amounts of mobile experiences and computer experiences that individuals now can have at home to visualize the universe. That physicality is still there, but it has to adapt as technology changes. Space shows are offered regularly, however, where viewers fly to the borders of space rendered in picture-perfect quality. Merchants of Memory is a show created by James Polshek, and this creates a spatial experience to create awe and wonder in support of the science. Worlds Beyond Earth is a 2020 show curated by geologist Denton Abel, which draws on research from recent NASA expeditions. A part of the program follows the journey and story of a comet through space. The colors are vibrant, and the visual experience is awesome. These visuals come from photographic data taken of these various expeditions. And the movie likewise recognizes the fragility of Earth. According to a New York Times article, the presentation shows the frightening fortunes that might have befallen Earth. Mars is held up as a frozen desert, a failed Earth. Venus, scorched by solar wind with a surface that could melt lead, is seen as an object lesson in global warming taken to the extreme. This provocation can lead to an actionable response. This narration, this interpretive content, can lead to an actionable response. And as we look at the Adler Planetarium and the Hayden Planetarium, it's important to keep in mind that whether it's a narration on a video for the program or it's a physical interpreter or presenter there to talk about the information, that individual whether they're digitally speaking or physically speaking, is leading to that provocation, is causing that provocation, and is indeed bringing meaning to these visuals we see on the screen. They could just appear as gaseous, wondrous, colorful entities without that interpretive model, without that interpretive perspective. And interpretation supplies that. And like the Hayden Planetarium and the Adler Planetarium, we at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum hold our own planetarium in very high esteem. Though it may not be quite to the status of those aforementioned, it serves our community quite well. The Kalamazoo Valley Museum Planetarium screens a variety of presentations and programs for school groups and other public audiences. Over 40 shows are presented in rotation, covering a wide range of topics, including cultural-based shows, technology-based shows, music and light shows, and of course a plethora of shows detailing the night sky and solar system. In addition to this, there exists an enormous amount of information on our website covering a multitude of astronomical concepts, such as moon phases, solstices and equinoxes, 
meteors and comets, auroras, and planet exploration for those who are keen to expand their knowledge of the boundless galaxies beyond us. This goes to show that although the Kalamazoo Valley Museum may not operate on the same scale as renowned institutions such as the Hayden Planetarium or Adler Planetarium, there still exists a strong commitment to sharing information with guests in order to develop an appreciation for the universe around us. With that being said, we've arranged for our very own planetarium technician as well as one of our planetarium presenters to join us today in order to further describe the planetarium at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum as well as its goals, challenges, and plans for the future. All right, welcome to the podcast, Stephen Mara. If uh, the two of you would like to introduce yourselves, go right ahead. My name is Steve Crawford. I am the theater and planetarium technologist at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum. Uh, my name is Mara. Uh, I am an interpretation specialist at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum, and I also do live star talks and teach in the planetarium. All right. And so just to give you two some context, uh, earlier in our podcast today, we talked about the roots of planetariums uh, and then did some case studies where we explored the Adler and Hayden planetariums. And uh, since both of you work uh, at a planetarium and have a lot of experience working in a planetarium, um, we'd like a bit of your insight on the uh, topic. And uh, our first question for you today is, um, based on uh, your experiences, what is the relationship between interpreters and planetariums? And this could be in Kalamazoo or it could be at other institutions from your experiences. So if either of you would like to answer that, go right ahead. I think interpreters are a very important piece of the puzzle when it comes to understanding how a planetarium functions. So the planetarium itself is just a bit of a canvas to present information on, and interpreters work as someone who uh, works as the in-between to explain what's happening. Uh, it's really easy to walk into a, a dome setting and look up and see a bunch of lines connecting stuff and dots on the ceiling and not really fully understand the context of what you're looking at. So I think interpreters are really important because they provide context. Yeah, totally. Um, we've been talking about that earlier in our podcast a little bit about how interpreters uh, give that meaning and breathe life into uh, these images that are uh, projected upon a dome. And, you know, of course, there are programs that have narrative interpretation but, um, you know, having a physical interpreter there uh, at an institution like ours, I'm sure, is very impactful. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's a really unique experience, I think, to be able to go into an immersive space and to have someone guiding you along your journey. Uh, it's really wonderful to have the privilege to really be a part of that experience and to share that journey with the people who are coming in. It's like a, like a living sort of storytelling sure. Do you have any personal experiences you can remember of people you've gotten to share that experience with? Any impactful memories, maybe? Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like almost every single time I work in the planetarium, I have a really authentic experience, whether it's the extremely unenthused uh, middle schooler who came in thinking that it was going to be extremely boring, who suddenly finds themselves really, really interested, or if it's the, like, new age family coming in who's asking me about the zodiac signs and what they actually mean uh, in terms of like the zodiacal and I get to tell them, oh, it's not just this thing you read about in a magazine. There's actual constellations and they're up there and you can look for them at night and that's pretty cool. Um, 
I love that when you're in a dome space, it creates a situation where suddenly you have to look outside of yourself as a human being and you have to look at something that's much larger than um, humanity itself, really, because we're just on this giant rock that's floating through space. And it's kind of a mind-blowing experience. It's really fun to see people's brains kind of opening up in the process. Yeah, I wonder to what extent the physicality of that space maybe like therefore like influences that. But I'm curious also to what extent the interpreter, someone like you being there, influences that as well. Maybe it's an interplay between the two, um, between all aspects that uh, create this experience. Yeah, it's a pretty immersive situation. It's pretty fun. So um, impactful and meaningful personal experiences aside, are there any particular difficulties that interpreters face when educating people in the planetarium? And if so, how do you go about navigating that? Um, I think uh, from an interpreter's perspective, sometimes um, understanding that everyone comes into that space with their own belief system, their own sort of narrative history to their life, their own uh, desire to learn and understand um, I think keeping that in mind is really important. Um, one of the challenges you face as an interpreter is always understanding how to present uh, the material you'd like to share to every person as an individual, because everyone is going to be in a different position to digest what you're sharing with them. So maybe, you know, family who's interested in new age stuff wants to hear about zodiacs because they've got the woo-woo background but maybe a more conservative family is going to want to hear uh things from a particular different perspective and so you just have to kind of that's uh, that's also the fun part of being an interpreter is that you get to gauge conversations as as they're going they're, they're all very organic and living uh instances when it comes to education so probably that yeah Definitely. And um, to play off of that, um, you kind of hinted at it, but do you take into account your specific audience when you're presenting information and modify it to accommodate them? Or is there like a strict set of guidelines that you have to follow? I think it's a bit of both. So we do have guidelines that we, I mean, as an educator, you should always make sure that you're you're sticking within these particular boundaries so that the information that you're sharing with one group is reflective of what you're sharing with another group and that you're not withholding information from one, one group of people and, and overwhelming another group of people with a lot of personal thoughts and feelings on a particular subject. But um, I do think that when you're teaching, whether you're an interpreter or an educator from a different particular you know, subset of education, it's always important to keep your audience in mind because... Um, if I'm speaking to somebody, there's going to be natural walls there. Everyone has their own sort of natural barrier for information coming in. And the goal is to have somebody walking away with something they didn't have before, whether it's a new piece of insight or a new fact that they can tell their friends or uh, a new perspective. And I think you kind of stonewall the opportunity to do that if you're approaching everybody robotically like everyone's the same and learns the same. Definitely. Very well said and thank you for that. And um, Steve, in terms of the aforementioned difficulties that interpreters face in planetariums, I understand that throughout the course of the pandemic, you've been providing Star Talks digitally. Were there any added difficulties when it came to presenting programming from home? 
Yes, absolutely. There were, of course, technical challenges in presenting what is normally projected onto a large dome screen uh, and adapting that for a, a flat computer screen. Um, but beyond the technical challenges of that, there are some interpretive challenges as well. In the planetarium, it's hard to see your audience, but uh, but you know they're there. And online, uh, when I'm presenting through uh, through Zoom or whatever else, I can't necessarily see my audience or hear them rustling around or really any thing at all. I, I, it's hard to get any feedback unless someone asks a question by uh, sending a message in the chat or, or unmutes their microphone and asks a question. Uh, so it's a very, it's almost like presenting to a wall in a lot of ways, um, which can be very, very challenging because I think an important part of interpretation in the planetarium or elsewhere is really interacting with the audience. And it's much more difficult to get a feel for how the audience is reacting to the information I'm presenting uh, without any real ability to get feedback. I can definitely understand how that would be the case. And in considering this translation from working with a dome to a flat digital screen, um, how exactly did you approach that? And do you think it'll ever equal that experience as long as we're in the pandemic? So from a technical standpoint, um, I am able to use the software that we use in the actual planetarium uh, software from a company called Evans and Sutherland. Um, the software is Digistar 6. And I was able to sort of warp the perspective of the image that's normally output and put it onto a flat screen. But with that, you lose a significant amount of, of screen space, sort of. So when I'm presenting uh, remotely, when I'm presenting on a flat screen, the audience and I can only see about 110 degrees, 100 degrees uh, left and right, horizontal field of view out of what should be 360 degrees, uh, which is what it is in the actual planetarium dome. So we're only seeing less than a third of the horizon. And then there's also the sort of vertical field of view. We can't see all the way up to the zenith of the dome because there is no dome 
Uh, we can only see, gosh, I think about 50 degrees um, north of the horizon, so a little more than half, um, maybe, maybe closer to 60 degrees. Uh, and that limited field of view can make it very difficult to keep a planetarium program moving organically because it limits us to this certain part of the sky where in the planetarium, in the actual dome, it's very easy to just turn your head left and right to see what we're talking about. And you can better see spatial relationships uh, because you can see the entire night sky uh, or the entire star field. And that spatial relationship sort of goes away on the flat screen. So with that, one of the things I've had to do is organize the, uh, the sky tours in such a way that I am spending time talking about things within certain boundaries and then moving the perspective to what would be another part of the dome, uh, moving that perspective to another part of the night sky while trying to maintain a sort of anchor to what we had talked about before. So the audience understands where in the night sky we're looking. Yeah, no, it sounds like a whole task in itself, and it probably was a lot of work, but I mean, it's it's great that you were able to find a way to translate it because it's probably very difficult to replicate such an experience. And it's probably, it doesn't really sound replicable, really. It sounds like it's this is just, you know, the best that you can do, and, um, you know, it's not going to equal an experience of actually being inside a planetarium. Right. So to the second part of your question, a flat screen remote presentation can't ever equal, in my view, an actual presentation in the real dome of the planetarium. There's something to the physical space of the planetarium uh, beyond just the sort of logistical aspects that I was talking about previously, where, you know, you can see much more of the sky, but also just because it is such an unusual space, there's there's something of a sense of awe and a sense of wonder that really can't be replicated over a flat screen, I think. When you walk into a planetarium dome that is maybe 50 feet across and 30 feet high at the zenith or or more it really gives you a sense of being somewhere different um being somewhere special there's there's a bit of um it's almost it's almost numinous right there's that sense of mysterium tremendum you might otherwise get walking into uh an ancient chapel or something like that. There's there's something different about the space um, that's almost... Uh... Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's funny that you mentioned ancient chapel because the architect of the Hayden Planetarium described his project as a cosmic cathedral. Um, 
which really in a way kind of it illustrates it's it's sort of a divine experience it's a it's an extraterrestrial experience even though it communicates something that's not necessarily something you'd find in the x-files so yeah absolutely so um in considering though i guess just like adapting and changing and all of the issues that i've come across you know to i'm sure plenty of planetarium operators and technicians and technologists in the in the pandemic um what are and and also you know considering the history of planetariums um modern planetariums have evolved from auroraries globes astrolabs all of these different devices used to uh, visualize the universe um what visions uh, and this is for both of you uh, what visions do you have for the future of um, astrological and astronomy education and visualization uh, in planetariums? And you could be as creative as you want, as imaginative as you want. <laughs> I'd like to see um, even more of an immersive space. Like, I think it would be really cool to have like an entire um, space you could go in where it's like an entire dome that goes all the way around so like the spherical space that you could go into and have uh stars and constellations projected all the way around as a full immersive experience i think it would be pretty special to see um parts of the sky that you would never otherwise see if you were uh in the northern hemisphere or if you were in the southern hemisphere there's a whole section of constellations we don't ever get to experience um so i personally would love to see uh, more funding and more technology go into uh, space education. I think it's really important for all of us on this planet to recognize that we are one species um, having to work together and to survive together and thrive together and having the educational experience to be reminded that we are one species and that we are sharing this space together uh, it's a very sacred experience, and I think it's really important for us as human beings to have that. So that would be my ideal dream, is a giant sphere that you could walk into. So I would say that uh, something that's kind of happening now is a move toward the use of virtual reality in uh, planetariums or around planetarium programs. Um, I don't know that something like virtual reality will ever replace the planetarium dome, but certainly it's used more and more, uh, especially as an outreach tool, because it's, of course, a lot easier to move around some VR headsets compared to moving around a 30-foot diameter metal dome. Um, I think there are also some other technological innovations that are moving planetariums forward. Um, there's an increased focus on going through large data sets, so using big data in uh, planetarium presentations. Um, there is, I think, more of a focus on using planetariums for research um, in addition to educating the public. Uh, or even educating undergrads or, or K-12 through students, um, using planetariums as a place to do research in, a, in its own right or to visualize research that's being done. And I think that's an important step forward. And there's also uh, just a continuous move toward 
making the planetarium more and more realistic. Uh, so the stars need to be sharper in digital planetariums. In, in optomechanical planetariums with star balls or star projectors, they're, they're very, very sharp, but that limits what else can be shown. So most planetariums have moved to digital projection systems, but with that you lose some of the realism of the stars. And I think that that is finally sort of catching up. And uh, I look forward to seeing that move more and more toward additional realism, because I think that's really important that people coming into a planetarium see what they could expect to see in the actual night sky. Yeah, definitely. That all sounds very exciting to look forward to. And on a final note, and this question is for both of you. Would you say that the mission of the planetarium at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum is education, entertainment, or is it more a combination of both? That's an interesting question. Uh, and I think it kind of relates back to the question about the relationship between interpreters and planetariums. So that really varies, in my experience, based on the planetarium and what each planetarium views as their mission. Um, so some planetariums, especially larger planetariums, they operate in some ways more like amusement parks or movie theaters, uh, which I don't mean necessarily to be disparaging. Uh, I think there's certainly value in that. And then on the exact opposite side of the spectrum, you have maybe a planetarium that is used by an astronomy department at a university and is really only used to visualize astronomical concepts for, for students, for undergraduate or graduate astronomy students. So a very heavy focus on education and no focus really on entertainment. And I would say that most medium-sized planetariums like ours at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum are somewhere in the middle. So there is there is the entertainment aspect. We definitely want people to be entertained when they come into our planetarium. And we have a lot of really spectacular shows, but we also would like them to come away having learned something, or at the very least, to come away with a desire to learn about space or astronomy. Yeah, to, um, to sort of agree with, with what Steve was saying, um, I think sparking the desire to learn more is always, as, a, as an interpreter, is always my goal whenever I'm having an audience come into my planetarium space. In particular, um, I would like people walking away to not only have been entertained, even if that entertainment was just a moment of meditation or relaxation, um, if that was just a break in their day where they were able to kind of let go a little bit of stress. Um, but I would, I would ideally love to see an audience walk out with the desire to look something up or maybe um, that night looking up at the sky going, oh, oh yeah, okay, that's where that is. Or um, maybe just having this desire to... To want to observe more, I think as a 
as interpreters, um, inspiring people to be more observant is, is a really big goal for us. Yeah, that's, I think the biggest goal that I have is, is to inspire people that come into the planetarium to want to learn more. Um, we only get a small amount of time typically with any given audience. Um, it's not like a college course or uh, a school class where the same audience is coming, you know, week after week. Perhaps some people are, but for the most part, our audiences are people who have not been to a planetarium before, or maybe they've been once, but it was 20 years ago or something like that. And they're not necessarily there to gain a deep understanding about the mechanics of planetary orbits or something like that. And we wouldn't have time to explain all of that in the sometimes 15 minutes uh, or even up to an hour that we have with them. And uh, so really the important thing to me is introducing some topics or introducing the idea of astronomy and stargazing to people and hopefully that will entice them to come back and learn more or uh, as Mara said go out and look at the night sky well those are some awesome notes to close on um thank you both for coming on the show today we really appreciate having both of you on and uh, having you detail your uh, perspectives and thoughts on these uh, on these different questions thank you for having us yeah thank you in our interview, we talked about plans for the future and ways in which planetariums can maybe innovate and change. And planetariums are already innovating in a lot of ways. And Ray and I are going to outline a few of these. For example, ultimately, an era of big data has changed the way in which planetariums explore and explain science and astronomy. This could mean depicting this to audiences through a big data model, through the large scope and physicality of a planetarium to better allow these individuals to visualize and understand these, this data and these, these numbers. Um, and could even mean allowing researchers to use these planetariums to visualize their data as well. And this is already happening. For example, researchers use the size of the Hayden Planetarium to visualize big data that they cannot conceptualize on their computers. Natalie Hinkle, a research scientist at the Southwest Research Institute, stated that zooming past eight years of work and flying through it was very powerful and helpful for her research. And in regard to individuals and audiences beyond researchers, Mark U. Soberal argues that the public planetarium's reach and the trust they have in communities makes museums and planetariums important sites to educate on science. Even controversial topics like evolution or climate change can be much more impactful under a big data model. And from that perspective, the curator of a planetarium has to translate themselves, to transition themselves from that of a curator of astronomical data to that of an astronomical weather person an interpreter of the continuous flow of information coming from telescopes, space missions, and computer simulations. The interpreter, the planetarium exhibitor, 
the planetarium educator, the planetarium technician, are all one. And they all have to realize that we live in an information age of big data. And this could mean that planetariums now have a role for researchers and now have a new role for their audiences. And as Jacob described, planetariums today have really taken on the role of becoming a potent education tool for many institutions across the country and across the world. An article titled The Effect of Planetariums in Teaching Specific Astronomy Concepts remarks that, quote, despite being the oldest science, studies related to astronomy education did not date back very far, end quote. However, because planetariums provide such an exceptional model of kinesthetic learning, in recent years, many educators have partnered with them in order to create the most effective learning experience possible. This is a highly significant task that requires a great deal of specialization, seeing that learning astronomical concepts requires a great deal of spatial reasoning. The size and scale of many of the concepts being discussed are difficult to grasp for elementary-aged children. Author Julia Plummer notes that, quote, the reliance on spatial thinking and celestial motion points to the importance of designing instruction that supports students in learning to visualize patterns and constructing mental models that allow them to move between frames of reference in their explanations, end quote. This is because understanding concepts of celestial motion requires more than just understanding how things move in space. For example, children are more than often able to understand that the Earth rotates, yet have no concept of how day and night cycle works. Likewise, it is not difficult to understand that the moon orbits the Earth, but lunar phases can seem overwhelming and complicated. It's in this sort of sense that planetariums and their specialized programming function so well. As we've described, interpretation involving hands-on experience and a clear visual demonstration are crucial elements in the development and retention of this knowledge. An article regarding the exploration of classroom and planetarium-based instructional concepts states that the cognitive challenges involved in understanding the role of the Earth's rotation in our observations are sufficient to require specific instructional strategies that help students understand both the Earth-based and space-based perspectives. With that being said, planetariums are capable of demonstrating these concepts in a way that didactic learning is simply incapable of doing. Visual simulations can support students in developing mental schemas of celestial motion, such as observational patterns, that can be called upon to help them construct explanations. Engaging in kinesthetic experiences can support students in developing embodied schemas of celestial motion. Thus, according to Plummer, quote, Learning astronomy through the use of kinesthetic action may help students understand the spatial relationships between Earth-based and space-based perspectives and allow students to use motor imagery to run mental simulations of celestial motion concepts, end quote. Without targeted instruction, research suggests that most children will not develop scientific explanations that account for both Earth- and space-based reference frames. And unfortunately, most didactic learning is not particularly targeted. It paints with a broad brush in order to show overarching framework, but does not necessarily delve into specific concepts. The National Science Education Standards recommend that elementary-age students gain an understanding of the apparent patterns of the motion of the sun, moon, and stars by the end of their elementary education. Little information exists on how students are able to learn these concepts. For this reason, a study was conducted in 2007 in order to draw a conclusion on the influence of planetarium programs on the retention of this knowledge. 
The study examined the development and students' understanding of apparent celestial motion after taking part in a planetarium program using kinesthetic learning techniques. Post-program analyses determined that there was a significant enhancement in knowledge of all areas of apparent celestial motion that were covered in the programming. The results demonstrate not only that planetariums are a potent education tool, but also the inherent value of kinesthetic learning techniques as well as rich visual environments. Thus, in contrast with traditional schooling, the planetarium environment is able to provide a much more balanced instructional model. And another way that these institutions can have these informal educational benefits is because they're exploration institutions. They meld exploration and explanation, which I would argue is what museums and planetariums can achieve in science education by creating this two-way model. The exploration is the individual audience's response and autonomy in their learning experience, while the explanation is the interpreter's role. And that role has to be open to the exploratory part of the audience member. The interpreter has to be open to learning from their visitors as well as educating them because science is developing at an increasing pace and the educator cannot know everything. And this is a brief anecdote, but this two-way relationship is very important to consider when thinking of planetariums. Also, planetariums have been innovating in disability awareness and accommodation. For example, the astronomy and inclusion of the Argentina Pierre Auger Foundation and the Institute in Technologies and Detection of Astroparticles Mendoza created planetariums for the blind, deaf, and motor disabled in 2012. These planetariums include physical touch and a more interactive display, which uses LED to represent the stars, and initiates with the wonder from experiencing the sky to then get into the more technical aspects of the science of why the sky looks the way it does. And here in the United States, the U.S. Department of Justice describes in reference to the American Disability Act that numerous museums since the 1970s have made a formidable effort towards improving accessibility of their buildings and programming. Today, institutions that invest time and money into designing accessible exhibitions and providing effective communication have the potential to engage with more than 50 million Americans with disabilities and more than 20 million families with members that are disabled. One such institution is the aforementioned Adler Planetarium in Chicago, which provides a wide variety of resources in recognition of the diverse needs and abilities of their patrons. This includes personal-assisted listening devices for those who may be hard of hearing, as well as closed captioning for the entirety of their shows that can be accessed by means of mobile devices. In addition to this, sign language interpreters are available for those with complete hearing loss at no additional charge. Furthermore, the Raritan Valley Planetarium in Branchburg, New Jersey has conceptualized a sensory-friendly planetarium program that is specifically intended for those with developmental disabilities. Throughout the program, doors stay open so that children can leave and re-enter at their leisure, lights remain dimmed, and audio is adjusted to be lower than usual and kept at a consistent volume. Like any other show, it consists of astronomical concepts by means of music, laser lights, stories, and information regarding the planets, moons, and constellations. However, it clearly does so in a way that appeals to a minority group that is often overlooked or neglected in many other aspects of life. 
This goes to show that the Adler Planetarium, the Raritan Valley Planetarium, as well as the Argentinian Planetarium that Jacob described, in addition to numerous others across the country that have adopted these methods of compliance, have a clear devotion to guest satisfaction. While it is clear that institutions are required to be in compliance with the American Disabilities Act, establishments all across the country and the world have made an enormous effort to further overcome discrimination on the basis of disability and go beyond the bare minimum of obligation. This in itself strengthens the claim that planetariums are a potent education tool that can be accessed by anyone and everyone. On today's episode, we explored the roots of planetariums, the Adler Planetarium, Hayden Planetarium, our friends at the Kalamazoo Valley Museum, and also explored some innovations and ways for growth in planetariums. Overall, this continuum, this exploration, shows the increasingly important interpretive effect that planetariums can have in interpretation. Planetariums and their physicality, in their unique method of display of the universe, and as we can see, several other topics, make them provoking mediums for interpretation and interpreters across the world. Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast for bibliography, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and visit us in two weeks where we will talk about American Living History Museums.